So I'm going to read the first 13 verses uh, again this morning. And uh, I think we'll maybe be able to get through all of that. We started last week just to remind you uh, of where we're at. So Romans 7, starting in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, roused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that by, uh, which held to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Brian was reading out of Ephesians 3 earlier about the mystery of the gospel. What a wonderful thing that God revealed to the apostles and prophets. It was kind of shadowed or hidden in the Old Testament that God would take people, he's always saved them the same way, by grace, through faith, and what he had revealed. But in, in the Old Testament, it was not revealed that God would take Jews and Gentiles and bring them together into one body. Uh, amazing work that Christ had done. And that gospel is so precious to us. The gospel which Paul's explaining in detail in the book of Romans, right? That gospel of which he was not ashamed, where it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then also to the Gentile. Uh, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, or how, how to have right relationship with God is revealed from faith unto faith. Just as it is written, the, the, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's the gospel. It's the power of God. It's the power of God to save people from sin. And that's why we need the gospel. That's what he goes on to explain. Because we're condemned as sinners. Romans 1, 18 through 3.20 explains that in 
in detail. And it doesn't matter whether we're really pagan, idolaters, non-believing, atheists, agnostics, whatever, idolaters, or whether we're really self-righteous religious people, Jew or, or professing Christian. It doesn't matter. All are sinners and are under the condemnation that the law brings for sin. But we know how we can be right with God. That's what he explains in chapter 321 through 521. We can be declared right in the sight of God by faith. By faith in what Jesus Christ did for us. What we remembered just moments ago. His sacrifice on our behalf that we might be right with God. Amazing. Amazing good news. And we have peace with God because of that. And, and, and the grace of God is so great that where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. So we'll never be overcome by our sin and the consequence of our sin again because we are right with God, justified by faith. Chapter 6, he went on to go into the doctrine of sanctification, how we are set apart from sin and unto God as his possession and to be used by him for his glory and honor. Just what Brian was talking about. Even in our giving, we do that for his glory and honor. So, in chapter 6, he said, here's what you need to know. In Christ, you're dead to sin. Understand your union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You're dead to sin. In what way? Well, that we're dead to the penalty that our sin Brings and we're dead to the power of sin over us. It doesn't have the right anymore to rule over us. We were slaves of sin, but we've been set free and we've become slaves of righteousness, he says. You're dead to sin. It's power, it's penalty, and it's power. And then in chapter 7, he's talking about the law, which we just read. Again, this whole chapter is about being dead to the law. So principle one is we're dead to sin. Principle two is we're dead to the law. And we're trying to understand what that means. And I think this is so important for us as believers because, you know, the truth is so many believers think this way. I just can't help it. I can't stop sinning. I just can't stop sinning. You're dead to it. You're dead to its penalty and its power over you. You can stop Sinning. I don't mean perfectly. I mean normal, habitual life is righteousness, slave of righteousness, not a slave of sin. And, and far too many believers think, well, I can be right with God if I just obey the commandments. Like, if I keep the law, then, I, then I'll have a good life. So that's what Paul is really addressing. And, and we started looking at it in chapter 7 last week. We only got through verse 4. And Paul lays out here a, a principle but before he does that, he says, you know, there are, people are under law. I mean, and th- this includes both believers and non-believers. Both Christians and non-Christians can be people under the law. And what I mean by that is, in essence, what Paul means by that is they can be legalists. Now, that's not a term in the Bible, but it describes what he's addressing here. A legalist is one, not who says... You know, the law is good and right and holy. No, the legalist is the one who describes the the wrong function to the law. Thinking that if I keep the law, I'll be right with God. I can earn a right relationship with God by living right. 
Or as a, as a believer, we can fall in the trap of thinking, well, I know that I'm saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, but in order to be sanctified, to be living a righteous life, I've got to keep the law. I want to have a good relationship with God, and the only way that's going to happen is if I obey God's commands. And that, too, is legalism. It's describing the wrong value to the law, the wrong function to the law. And so he lays out an important principle for us to remember, and that is that the law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as he or she lives. He said that directly in in our verses that we just read. The law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as he or she lives. Well, guess what? We who are children of God have died to the law. We're dead to it. It no longer has jurisdiction over us. Well, what does that mean? It means that we have died to the penalty and the power of the law. Just like we died to the penalty and power of sin, we've died to the penalty and power of the law. The the penalty of the law is you're guilty, you're condemned because you violated God's law. And the power of the law is that I feel guilty, I feel ashamed because I don't successfully keep the law. We're dead to that, Paul says. The law doesn't have jurisdiction over us. Now, someone does. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the illustration of marriage. We talked about that last week. This isn't teaching on marriage and divorce in this section. It's just an illustration that says, you know, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he living, he's living. If he dies, she's free to be single or she's free to marry another person. And, and then he went on to say directly, in the same way, we're dead to the law in Christ and we've been married to him. We are the bride of Christ, aren't we? We're not the bride of the law. We're the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, last week we... Uh, I said that there are three main principles that Paul addresses in these verses explaining how the law only has jurisdiction over a person as long as he or she lives. And the first of those dealing with how we can live sanctified lives is this, that we will not sin less and live holy unless we understand that we've died to the law. We've died to it, and that's what he said directly. I'm not going to recover that whole thing. Just understand that uh, you in Christ, just like you're dead to sin, not dead in sin, now you are dead to the law, not under the law, right? Yeah. And that's what he began to he introduce in chapter 6, where he says, what shall we say? Shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. God forbid. May it never be that we'd think that way. And now he's explaining that in, in detail. And at, at, at the end of verse 4, he had said there was a, a, an intended result or purpose for us being dead to the law and its jurisdiction over us. The penalty and the power of the law has been removed from us. And that was in order that we would bear fruit for God. You, you see, when we were slaves of sin, we bore fruit. It was fruit for death. And that's essentially what he had said in chapter 6. What, what did you get from what, the way that you lived before you came to know Christ? Shameful living, guilt-ridden living. That's what you get, you know, under the law and under sin. But when we're free from sin and we're free from the law, then we are able 
to bear fruit for the glory of God. And what kind of fruit is that? Well, I mentioned last week, Galatians 5, 22 and 3 expresses the kind of fruit that is fruit for God's glory. Well, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and, and uh, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against which there's never going to be a law. No one's ever going to say, stop being faithful. No law is going to say, you can't be kind. Well, that might be the law of the progressive, you know, left. But there's no real, there's no law from God that would stop any of that, right? And, And so that shows up in our, and changed aspirations and good attitudes and encouraging words and, and good works which God prepared for us. That's the fruit that he's talking about. We couldn't do that when we were slaves of sin. We couldn't do that when we were under law, under its penalty and its power. So that brings us to where we left off last week in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul, in 5 and 6, what Paul does here is he kind of does a before and after scenario. Last week I was explaining to you that Paul's addressing what we were and what we are now. What we were, slaves of sin and under law. What we are, slaves of righteousness and uh, free from the law because we have freedom in Christ, right? And so he kind of Addresses that again just briefly, restating almost what he's already said. And in verse 5, he describes our condition before we died to the law and its harsh judgment. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So by, what does he mean by living in the flesh? What he's referring to is all that we were, when we were under sin, when we were dead in sin, when we were of Adam's fallen race before we trusted in Christ and came to peace with God, what we were was an old man, old woman, controlled by sin, dominated by it, and then the guilt that comes from, well, knowing that I should live better and I don't, and so there's shame and guilt that is referred to. And by sinful passions, he's referring to things like anger and bitterness and hatred and jealousy and envy and unreasonable greed and, and uh, unreasonable fear and those kinds of things. And he says that these sinful passions originated in the flesh, but they were aroused by the law. They were aroused by the law. And what did it end up bringing? Death, he says, right? Our fit, sinful passions roused by the law were working our members to bear fruit for death. So that's what it's like to be living under law and still dead in our sin. The law reveals to us the standard of conduct that is expected by God. And then the sinful passions are aroused to do just the opposite of what the law required. And because we followed our sinful passions when we were dead in sin and under law, we we followed our sinful passions and what did we bear fruit for? Death. What kind of death? Well, spiritual death, certainly. The wages of sin is death. Free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. We talked about that. 
But it's a death kind of life, isn't it? It's a miserable, horrible life to be living under guilt and shame for not being the person you think you should be, etc., etc. It not only bears fruit for death for yourself, but other people too, because when you're that kind of person, you bring misery, miserable uh, misery into other people's life, a hopelessness that you have gets transferred to them, etc., etc. So that's what it's like to live under law. By saying that our sinful passions were at work in our members, well, Paul is bringing it from the attitudes of the heart, the anger, bitterness, greed, etc., 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 to the physical expressions they take. It was at work in our members. Remember chapter 6? Don't present your members as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness unto sin. That's what he's saying here, too. When we were dead in sin and under the law, that's what happened. Our sinful passions were at work in our members, and they, they, they are expressed outwardly. The clenched fist. I want to fight. Whether you're driving down the road and you're, you're, you're you know, you know what I'm talking about when people make you mad on the road. Or, or, or the foul and hurtful words that can come from our mouths or the, the jealous eye or the, the hateful acts of, I want to get even. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. Tit for tat, you know, that's how it goes. What goes around comes around. All those other phrases that describe the desire to, for revenge, to get even the acts of self-gratification, and, and other things like that. What's in the heart comes out in the life, doesn't it? And that's what he's saying there. And then in verse 6, he moves to what we are, the fantastic transformation that takes place in the lives of those who have put their faith in Christ, those that are no longer dead in sin but are and no longer under the law. He says, but now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What a beautiful verse this is. I mean, I think it's pretty easy as you're reading through Romans 7, you get tired of reading about the law and blah, 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 law, law, law. But don't miss this verse. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. We're released from the law. And the, and the word released refers to something that, that has been rendered null and void. That's how it was translated in chapter 6 and verse 6, where it says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing or rendered null and void. So he says, as far as the law is concerned, we've been rendered null and void. It's like we don't exist in the eyes of the law. Well, what does that mean? We're no longer condemned by it. The penalty doesn't apply to us. And it's power to bring guilt and shame and control our lives by that. That has been rendered null and void as well. Yes. So as far as the law is concerned, we, we've been rendered null and void or... Uh, it just does, we don't exist in its eyes, so there's no link between believers and the condemnation that it brings and the guilt that ensues as a result of it. We, and, and we've been discharged, if you will, from the law. That's another way that you could translate that word, release. We've been discharged from the law like 
someone might be discharged from military service. They serve their, their time and then they're discharged, right? Or some people get discharged from their job. They're released. You can go home and don't come back again. And that's kind of also in this word. So we have been discharged from the law like someone is discharged in that way. Wow. And then he says we were bound, but we've been released by that which, listen to this language, held us captive. Held us captive. Some translations have bound. We were bound by it. By what? By the law. But that that word held captive. Interesting, it's translated as suppressed in chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold down the truth. We talked about that many weeks ago now. So, listen, what he's basically saying is this. The legalist is forever held captive by their guilt, and it suppresses them. It holds them down from ever keeping the righteous requirements law. They cannot do it. But believers, those of us who are in Christ, we're released from that guilt. And not because we don't sin, but because Christ bore our sins as he hung on the cross. He died for our sins, and we've died with him, both to sin and to the law. Amen. Beautiful verse. Not quite done with it yet, though. Look at the last part of verse 6. He, he gives the intended result of being set free from law. I thought, well, didn't he already do that, that we might bear fruit for God? He says, yeah, yeah, that was intended result. And this is the ultimate intended result. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And the word serve there is the word, if you were translated, it's meaning we who serve as slaves. It's it's the same concept that came out of chapter 6. We become slaves of righteousness. So we serve as slaves in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So the legalist is continually struggling in his own or her own self-determination to keep the law, but constantly feels the guilt of failing. And they become miserable. But believers, he says, have been released from the law, the need to keep it. And by the way, they're finally able to keep it. (laughs) We'll get to that in chapter 8. They're actually finally able to keep it because of the work of the Spirit in their lives. But he introduces that, way, that idea here in chapter 7 in the new way of the Spirit. Now, he's not going to address it in detail in chapter 8 until chapter 8, but here he just introduces it, just like he did in chapter 6. We're not under law, but under grace. And then he waits, and in chapter 7, he's talking in detail about the law. So he introduces the Holy Spirit here in the middle of chapter 7. He's not going to talk about that in detail until we get to chapter 8, but he's just making the point here. But his real aim in this statement is to show that there is no value. There's no value in trying to serve God by keeping the written code. That's the old written code. According to the letter, right? Let me see if I can make this more clear. I think that 
one of the most difficult things for the non-Christian legalist is to believe that being right with God is solely based on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, they stubbornly hold on to the view that salvation must include good works. It's grace plus faith plus works to be right with God. It, it requires being a good person. It requires keeping the moral code. But the Bible is clear that a person is justified by faith alone in God's grace and the blood shed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone. Faith alone. So the, that's the non-Christian legalist. But how about Christian legalists? Because they do exist. They do exist. It's easy for them to fall into believing that sanctification is somehow not solely dependent on God's grace, but our obedience to the law. I mean, they would say with their words, I believe I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that's it. But how they live their life is, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and to have a good relationship with God, I've got to keep the law, right? So we, we fall into that trap of thinking that you know, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, but sanctification, well, it's, it's by grace alone and our obedience to the law. But the scriptures are just as clear that sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. He accomplishes it in us with our cooperation, but our cooperation is faith, not works. I can say these words, but let me tell you, people think differently. Many Christians think differently. They would say, uh, it's, it's by faith, and our cooperation is obeying the commandments. Yes, yes, works will be there if we are being sanctified by God, but they're the result of the Holy Spirit working in us and not something that we do by our self-determination and in our own strength. I mean, there's absolutely no way that we can ever keep the written code on our own power. We must fully depend on the Holy Spirit if we are ever to sin less and live holy. So think with me for a moment about this. As Paul speaks about the law and the written code in these verses... He's thinking primarily of Jewish Christians in the church. Those that, or those that were not really part of the church, they were just Jews. Remember throughout the book he's been dealing with the Jewish objector. Whether that was a, a Judaizer in the church or it was just someone like him before he came to know Christ. And so he's primarily thinking of those that know the Mosaic Law and how what he's saying would impact those with that Jewish background. So he's speaking about those who would be thinking something like this, that according to law, we must tithe. And and we must go to the house of the Lord, the temple, to worship. And we must faithfully keep the Sabbath. And we must observe the special days and festivals. And we must eat the right kind of foods. And that was part of Judaism, right? And, and so that Paul is telling them that they are not under the law to tithe. No. But in the Spirit, it is appropriate to give to the Lord's work. 
They are not under the law to worship at the Lord's house, but it is right and good to worship the Lord and gather in his house. They're not under the law to keep the Sabbath rules, but it is an important thing to remember that God created the Sabbath for us so that we would rest. That's a good gift that he's given us, not a harsh thing. They shouldn't feel compelled by the law to keep the special days and feasts, but it is right to remember the, the good things that God has given, the blessings that he has given that are represented by special days and feasts. It's kind of like how we should view Christmas or Easter. Not keeping it because it's a law, but because it helps us to remember such wonderful blessings from God. And, and they are no longer required to eat certain foods, but it is important for them to remember that God has created everything to be enjoyed and is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And it, it, it helps us to remember that God is good in providing all that we need. So that's what he'd be saying to that group of people. But how about you know, the Gentiles that were in the group? How about us? Let's put it that way. I mean, we're not under the law to pray without ceasing. Although 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says pray without ceasing. That's a command. We're not under law to pray without ceasing. But, hey, it is very important for us to pray because it absolutely reminds us how totally dependent on God we are for everything. We're not under the law to, to have a regular quiet time. In fact, you won't even find that phrase in the scriptures. You find a lot about having time in the word of God. But we're not under law to have a quiet time, but it is absolutely a good thing for us to do because it builds our relationship with God. We get to know him better. And by the way, we get to know ourselves better as well. We're not under law to attend church on Sunday or any other meeting, but it is important for us to do so through our because through our worship together and our fellowship together, we bring glory to God. And we bring encouragement to one another. Amen. We're not under law to tithe or to, to give to God's ministry. But it is one of the most significant ways in which we are reminding ourselves that all that we have belongs to God. And that he has been very good to us. And we want to show our gratitude. But you may say something like, but the Bible commands these things. That's what the legalists would say. And that is true. The Bible does give us commands. But that doesn't mean that we're under law. The existence of commands is not equal to being a legalist. Covered that last week. We're under grace. And we should do those things under the direction, according to Paul, the direction of the Holy Spirit. So, you see, there, those who are legalists do those things because they think, if I do these things, I'll be blessed by God. And if I don't do these things, I'm going to get it punished by God. Yeah. Those who understand that they're not bound to the written code, but are free to serve in the newness of the Spirit, will obey the commands because they understand they're under grace. And they've already been blessed by God. And that Jesus already bore the punishment that they would deserve for disobeying God's commands. 
and the legalist sees commands as rules that must be fulfilled, right? And the person on grace sees them as signs of their total dependence on God. The legalist thinks this way, I must do these things. The person under grace thinks, I get to do these things. Wow! The legalist thinks, I'm able to keep the law in by self-determination. The person under grace thinks, I'm unable to obey God and keep his commands apart from grace and the Holy Spirit. And the legalist is following the letter of the law, the written code. The person under grace is following the Spirit's leading. What a contrast, right? Now, one thing to keep in mind in regard to this is that much of what you see in the life of the legalist is attempting to keep the letter of the law as well as in the life of one who is under grace and is living in the newness of the Spirit. Well, their life looks pretty similar. Listen to what I'm saying. It can look similar. Both are doing the same things. Right? They're doing the same kinds of things. Both are seeking to do what is right. However, while their activities look the same, the motivation is entirely different. It's entirely different. One is motivated by fear. The fear of failure. And the, and the shame that will be there for disobedience. And the other is motivated by thankfulness. Right? That God's grace has been extended to them and they have the, the joy of knowing that whether they are successful or they fail, that God's going to lift them up and keep walking with them. What a difference. It looks the same, but it ends up looking way different on the face and it's way different in the heart. Motivation is completely different. So what is Paul taught in these first six verses? Well, there are many things that we've talked about, but there are two things that, in, in particular that I, I think we must believe if we're to sin less and to live more holy. We must first believe that freedom from the guilt that we feel because of violating God's law is experienced when we understand that we've died to the law in the death of Christ. It's our union with Christ. We must believe that. And then second, our position is in Christ is what will keep us from sinning and help us to live more holy because we believe that we'll never sin less and live holy by keeping the law. We just can't do it. And so we serve by newness of the Spirit. Great, great difference. Okay, second major principle that Paul gives us in this is in verses 7 through 13. We will not sin less and live holy under, until we understand the true nature of the law. Until we understand the true value of the law. So, so far we've seen that we're dead to sin and we're dead to the law in the death of Christ. And in verse 5, Paul had explained what we were in our pre-conversion state, saying, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members of our, 
uh, in our members to bear fruit for death. So some people would read what Paul wrote there and they might think that Paul was saying that the law was responsible for their sin. That's what he would be teaching, that the law is responsible for sin and death. And if the law aroused our sinful passions, which resulted in bearing fruit for death, doesn't that then make the law a bad thing? That's what they would be, the Jewish objector again, think like they think. That's what they would conclude Paul is saying. If we need to be delivered from the law, to be released from the law in order to bear fruit for God, doesn't, doesn't that imply that the law is responsible for our sinful behavior? Hmm. Well, such thinking is exactly what Paul addresses in 7 through 13. And he knew that question would arise, and that's why he asks it in verse 7. Look at it. What shall we say? That the law is sin? Now, that's the Jewish objector that he's dealing with. You, you think that I'm telling you that the law is sin. Notice Paul's answer is characteristic in this section. By no means. Meganoita in Greek. May it never be. God forbid. How horrible to even think that. I mean, that's all kind of expressed in that you know, little phrase. He categorically denies the thought that the law is sin. I mean, the, the, the objector has the right premise. Remember every time he uses this phrase, by no means, or may it never be, he's, he's implying this. You've got the right premise in there, but you've come to the wrong conclusion. So the objector has the right premise that the law aroused sinful passions, because he said that directly, but he has the wrong conclusion. And the wrong conclusion is that the law is consequentially sinful. It causes sin. So what Paul says in the rest of this paragraph explains the true value of the law. And he makes three points. So we have three points in this whole chapter, but now we have three points to the second point. Everyone following that okay? Okay. The first thing that it does is it reveals sin. It reveals sin. That's verse 7. The law doesn't create sin. It reveals it. Verse 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, had not said, you shall not covet. Well, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? Does he mean it's like, I wouldn't have ever had sin if the law hadn't said, don't sin? No, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that he would not have coveted if there was no law saying you shall not covet. Covetousness existed before there was a law that said you shall not covet. Yeah. I mean, that's clear. Um, think back to Cain and Abel. Cain wanted what Abel yeah. got. Abel got approval from God for his sacrifice. Cain wanted the approval. So he killed his brother. Because he couldn't get it. He didn't want his brother to live. That was covetousness. So Paul uses the 10th commandment. You know, the 10 commandments. He uses the 10th one as an example. To show that he would not fully have understood how terrible sin was. If there had not been a law. And this is the same thing that he said in chapter 3 and verse 20. Where he said the, uh, 
since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so the point is that though the law reveals we are sinful, that law doesn't cause sin. It is not the source of our sin. Uh, Let me give an example of what I mean. To say that the law is responsible for our sinfulness, I mean, that's just outrageous. It's outrageous to even suggest that. That's what Paul would want to say to the objector. So would anyone say that an x-ray that reveals a break in a bone caused the break in the bone? I don't think so. If someone went and got an MRI and it revealed that there was a tumor, it's like, that MRI, it caused my tumor. (laughs) No. No. It revealed it. It didn't cause it. Uh, let's take it at a software level. You, know, you, you get antivirus software, and you run it on your computer, and it reveals that there's a virus on your computer. I don't think people are thinking, that virus, uh, you know, protector thing, that software, however it works. It, they're not thinking it caused the virus. It reveals the virus, right? So, it would be utterly illogical to say that such machines or software cause what they reveal. And in the same way, it's nonsensical for us to ever conclude that the law, because the law reveals sins, that it somehow caused the sin. That's what Paul's saying. Is the law sinful? May it never be that we would think that. Because it reveals it. It doesn't cause it. Secondly, it provokes sin. And that's verse 8. Paul says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So not only does the law reveal it, it also provokes or stimulates or arouses it. But let's not misunderstand that. This is not saying that the law causes the sin. It simply means that by the very fact that the law speaks clearly about what is holy and what is sinful, it provokes or arouses sinful passions that already exist in us, right? They're there, lying dormant is kind of what he says. The law gets brought forth and it points out something bad in us. So it stimulates our resistance to it. So Paul is personifying sin and expressing that he, that it sees the the uh, it sees the commandment. Sin sees the commandment, and that it stimulates our sinful passions to resist or rebel against us. Now, understand again, this is dealing with the person who is a legalist. This isn't really describing how it works for us who are faithful followers of Christ. We'll see how it works in chapter 8. But Paul is addressing what was true of those who thought that a right relationship with God comes through the law or a good relationship with God is maintained by keeping the law. Now, it's interesting that the word translated opportunity, since he's the opportunity, it was used of a base of operations, a a starting point, if you will, from what where other actions could be taken. For example, it was used in a military context as the base of operations or the beachhead from which strikes could be made against an enemy. I just watched a series uh, on World War II, 
and the and particularly in uh, in the Pacific War how they kept seizing islands and the reason they did so was to have a starting point from where they could send planes to bomb the enemy they had to get closer because it was too far a distance for the planes to fly and return and so they needed a beachhead, if you will, a starting point. And that's kind of what he's describing. So sin is depicted here as engaging in a military operation, if you will, using the commandment as a, as a starting point. And the sin with all sinful passions were already in us, and it, sin used the commandment as a starting point for producing all kinds of evil desires and actions. So the way in which the law does this is a matter of common experience. It really is. I'm glad that you did. Seriously? (laughs) Oh, technology talking to us at the wrong time. So this is uh, something we talked about before, but I'm just going to mention it again because it just makes it so clear by way of illustration. It's it's interesting to watch people when they see a sign that is prohibitive, like keep off the keep off the grass. Now that doesn't mean that if there were people there they would if the sign wasn't there they wouldn't go on the grass, but it does mean this. When they see the sign, they want to go on the grass. Keep off the grass means go on the grass to them. Right? Or a sign that says Wet paint. Do not touch. They see that, and it's like, I have to touch. I have to touch. Oh, look, there's paint on my hand. It it just stimulates this, I want to do the opposite, right? Think of parents who tell their young children, don't touch. Don't touch. Now, that could be some priceless, or not priceless, but you know, special thing that you have sitting on a table or in a windowsill or, you know, a piece of crystal or something special. You know, we collect those things, right? So don't touch, or it could be a don't touch, the the burner's hot. And it seems like the parent telling the young child don't touch often turns out to be a call to action. (laughs) Touch, touch, go for it. And as they're doing it, they're like, right? You know how that works, right? Don't touch. To them means touch. Why? Because something is stimulated in them. Sin stimulates then in us, you know, a resistance to a command, whether it be positive or negative. Think back over the last couple of years with COVID. I know we want to put it in the past, but it's... It's still kind of hanging around in a way. But consider the reaction of many people when they would go up to a business and on the door there was a sign that says, Face Mask Required. What was stimulated in you when you saw that? I don't like wearing a face mask. I'm, I'm... I think I'll just go in there not wearing a face mask, see what they do. Or I'll show you, I just won't come into your business if you're going to require a face mask. Right? The command, if you will, stimulated a lot of anger and actions on people's part. 
At the very least, it raised the same passion in you to get angry and rebel against it. And so Paul's point is that the law, with all of its commandment, whether it's a do not or a do, provokes or stimulates or arouses the sin that is residing in the person with the result that that person rebels against the commandment, does the opposite. And that's what Paul found for himself, he says, before he came to know Christ. The law said, do not covet. You know what happened? He coveted all the more. He saw what other people had, and he says, I want that. I'm going to get that. And if I have to get it from you, I'll, I'll do that. Because the law was used by sin to stimulate that kind of thing. So the law reveals sin, and the law provokes sin, and let her see the law condemns sin. And that's the rest of the verses 9 through 13. So Paul says in verse 9, I was once part alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Listen to William Hendrickson, a commentator. He describes this so well. He says, there was a time when I felt secure under no conviction of sin. At that time, the full implication of the law had not registered in my consciousness, had not yet become an unbearable burden upon my heart. I thought that morally and spiritually I was doing quite well. But when the commandment came, that is, when it was brought home to me what the law really demanded, I realized what a great sinner I was. I was then, it was then that I died. That is, that was the end of me as a self-satisfied, self-secure person. Pretty powerful description. So when Paul got a good and full understanding of God's law showing the perfection of God and how far short he fell for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, he says he died. What does he mean? He didn't die physically, he died spiritually. He realized, in fact, that he was already dead spiritually. It was then, and only then, that he could be broken and contrite and ready to receive God's grace. Paul, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, isn't it? Why are you rebelling? Who are you? I'm the Lord who you've been persecuting. And he bowed the knee to the Lord. He was contrite. He repented and received grace. And so only when we realize what the law is showing us, this is the true value of it, will we be brought to repentance and, and, and we would cry out, as the repentant tax collector in Luke, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Yeah. Okay, we're going to stop there. We are. We are. We're going to stop there. We'll pick it up and finish. We'll finish chapter seven next week. Aren't you glad for the gospel? Yes. Amen. What good news it is, right? To know that we can be right with God. And it doesn't take us doing anything. It took Christ doing his sacrifice and his resurrection from death. Paul said in Romans chapter 4, the last verse, that he secured, guaranteed our justification. Being made right with God came through what Christ has done. And boy, that's... 
that's good news not only in the sense that that you know I'm going to go to heaven when I die or when the Lord Jesus returns I mean that's secure that's our great hope certainty but it's more than that isn't it it's it's, it's good news for today it's good news for right now yes. because I was one who used to live under sin even though I was dead to it and I was one who lived under law even though I'd been released from it I was a legalist at heart and it was misery it was a constant feeling of despair because I fell short and it's like why can't I do it I'll never be able to do it so many people think that way God does want not want us to think that way We'll address it next week in the great conflict portion of the last half of chapter 7. Paul, Paul's not expressing that the normal Christian lifestyle is to fail and to feel miserable and, and to be wretched. Yeah. That is the life of the legalist, not the one who has been made dead to sin and dead to the law. We're free. We have peace with God, and we've been set free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you miserable. Does that make any sense? No, the truth shall set you free. Not free to do what you want, but now you are actually free to do what God wants you to do. And even when you fail, you know that he's going to lift you up. He washes you clean as you do it. There's no guilt and shame to that. There's thanksgiving and gratefulness and victory that comes from that. So, Lord, we are thankful for the gospel. What good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray that you would really burn these truths into our hearts and minds so that we might live in the freedom that Christ purchased for us. So we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. Thank you for all that you do for us, not only securing our eternal relationship, but all that you do for us day by day. Thank you that you're with us every step of the way. Thank you for all that you supply us, including we give thanks for the food that we're going to eat together and the fellowship that we'll enjoy around it. That's part of your good provision for us. So all praise to the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen.